Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Lisa Saunders, author of Even at the Grave, and despite the title, it's not a horror story, just the opposite. This is a memoir, but not a sad one. Though it might make you cry when you read the book, you will laugh too. Lisa is inspired and been inspired by the people she pastored. In her journey, she discovered that there is much generosity and grace in the world, even at the grave. Lisa starts with a short reading from the first chapter of the book, Stopping Time. Chapter 1. Stopping Time I don't remember anything about the first funeral I attended. It was for my grandfather, Robert Goodwin Sr., and I was four. The story goes that when I saw my grandmother crying, I proclaimed loud enough for all to hear, Let's dig him up. My mother's family had a tradition to stop a clock at a death. An ivory porcelain timepiece painted with pink and lavender flowers sat silent on a table in our living room. Its hands were stilled when my mother's Aunt Cece died. I never knew her, and I don't know the time of her death, because as a child I would pry open the clock's glass face and twirl the hands round and round. Funerals, however, do stop time. Work is abandoned, plans are undone. But funerals also create time, Time for reflection, connection, and appreciation. As a priest in the Episcopal Church, I have officiated at hundreds of funerals. I knew that would be part of the package. I didn't know they would be so formative, rewarding, and inspiring. Funerals, the lead-up, the events themselves, and what follows, usually provide me a front-row seat to profound courage as well as heartbreak. But most of all, I am a witness to hope and the enduring, renewing power of love. The defining moment of my religion takes place in a cemetery. So it should not be surprising that the ground of hope is never firmer than when standing at the grave of a loved one. Priests are expected to hatch, match, and dispatch. Presiding at baptisms and weddings is joyous, but it is the dispatches, the funerals, that pick me up by the lapels and loosen what's too tight and tighten what's too loose. I am set back down, realigned, and grateful. Author Lisa Saunders has been an Episcopal priest for over 30 years. Officiating funerals became the defining, most compelling work of her career. Through burials, she writes about her marriage, her struggle to be a working mother, making peace with tragedy, and understanding suicide and mental illness. She also tackles racism, including her own, and learns from those who have courage to grow with gusto. Lisa was educated at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, received a BA in journalism, and was president of her senior class. She attended Virginia Theological Seminary, where she obtained a Master of Divinity, 
1984 and became an ordained priest in June 1986. She was the first woman priest to serve in the Episcopal Church in the state of Florida, and she served at Christ Church in Charlotte since January 1988. Lisa's married to Tim Saunders, a pediatric and neuro-ophthalmologist, and has three grandchildren. All five, six if you count son-in-law, are UNC Chapel Hill alums. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Lisa, you, uh, from what I know, your family bleeds Tar Heel Blue. Is that right? My family, yes. My husband, uh-huh. myself, our three children, and my father all are Tar Heels. But we have some Wolf Pack and some 49ers and others uh-huh. involved, too. And you at least had five in your family that graduated from Carolina. And I was thinking, well, that that's going to cut all, out all the Duke listeners and everyone who hates Carolina. But the Carolina following is pretty large, so maybe we'll we'll increase our downloads just with that yeah. alone. Well, yeah. my son-in-law graduated from Duke Medical School, and my daughter has extra degree after college from Duke. So we have matriculated okay, through right, there. Okay. All right, Lisa, your book here, Even at the Grave, uh, the, the opening piece that you read there, priests are expected to hatch, match, and dispatch. You couldn't put it more succinctly, could you? Well, and that's not original to me. Yeah. That's a, that's sort of a, a clergy lingo kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, but it resonates, right? Yes, yeah. right. It yeah. hits all those, um, those major rights in people's lives. Mm. So tell us about your work. Well, I have been at uh, Christ Episcopal Church in Charlotte for 31 years. Um, I came when I was 28 and had a three-month-old, and I um, have been an associate there all that time, not always full-time. 15 years, I was part-time and stayed home with children a lot. But um, the last 12 years, I have been primarily involved in pastoral care, and that has connected me with people on sometimes the worst days of their lives, Mm -hmm. um, but also sometimes one of the most um, courageous and um, moving times of their lives as well. Um, Every day is different, which I love. There are always surprises in each day, and I don't do the same thing either. There, are, mm-hmm. I might be writing, I might be talking, I might be facilitating, I might be reading. It's 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 all very different. But being a minister at a church that size, Christ Episcopal Church, one of the largest in the diocese, is that right? Over, in the country for the, the Episcopal country. Church. So six thousand mm-hmm. or more. Members, five thousand, we'll five, say. And and somewhat, I mean, you got a lot of young people involved, but you have an elderly population that requires a lot of pastoral care, right? And you're having deaths. I mean, right. how, how often are you doing funerals? Well, um, last year, I think our church had about 45 funerals. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not counting. I don't, I don't well, I didn't, keep I, a track, I, but... I, I, yeah, yeah. Right. it's not like the doctor keeps track of the baby's right, every right. day. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit different yeah. than that. So, okay, so we got your background. We're going to talk a little bit later about you being one of the first female mm-hmm. priests in uh, the church in Florida. But why did you decide to write this book? Well, it sort of started with um, my boss, the rector of, of Christ Church, Chip Edens, encouraging me to write a book of sermons, which sounded to me like a pretty dull thing <laughs> for people to have to read. But at least or, people like your sermons. <laughs> well, that might they might like hearing them. I don't know if reading them is the same thing, or, yeah. or who would ever actually buy a book of sermons. But <laughs> And it didn't sound very interesting for me to write either. Right. Um, and you said, Chip, will you write one with sermons? No, that's right, right. <laughs> at, the, at about the same time, I ran across an obituary of my great-great-grandfather, and I learned some things in the obituary I never knew about him learn something about our family history or why my grandmother was named what she's named and things like that. And it, it dawned on me, I would love it if my great-grandfather had written more about his life so I could know, or my grandfather, or my father. And that if I wanted my own great-grandchildren to know anything about me, that I needed to write it down. And in thinking about writing a memoir, basically, and and I love reading memoirs, so that was sort of uh, much more interesting to me. Um, I also ran across a book by an actor named Frank Langella, who uh, wrote his memoir, and every chapter was a story of his relationship with a different celebrity. 
could be an actor, it could be a political person, but it was a different way of writing a memoir, and I like that. And so I began to think about what I would want to write, and certainly for me, the funerals that I have done is where the part of my ministry has ended up being, and I never anticipated that when I mm-hmm. started. You talked about Frank Langella and connecting his story to stories of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Who were the celebrities that inspired this book for you? Uh, well, my dad is certainly uh, a celebrity in this book and shows up from time to time. Um, and uh, some of that has to do with the great unconditional love he showed me and also his wonderful sense of humor because in this book I'm I'm much more proud of the moments where I can make somebody laugh than when I can make somebody cry mm-hmm. it's a much harder thing to do to make somebody laugh and um, and particularly when you're writing a book about funerals um, <laughs> what would they say what there's fun in funerals right? that's right that's right so you've got to put the fun in funeral <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, and, and he his sense of humor. You do talk about this in the book, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think the way he described people that he couldn't actually, he would have to give a reference for somebody, right. and mm-hmm. he would do it in in the most you know clever way that you couldn't really tell after you heard it. Was he complimenting the person or not? Right, right, yeah. And, and you must have had that in in your own life, uh, funeral life, where you had to give a eulogy for someone that. Uh, Maybe didn't didn't walk the straight and narrow, right? Well, um, I have I've, I've, I've certainly written um, and and spoken at funerals of people that I never actually knew, um, and uh, I learn about them through their family, and I end up being the one who tells their story. But relatively few people that I've ever done a funeral for that was a person that I didn't like. Right. Well, that's good to know since. People at Christ Church may be listening. To That's this. right. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about the title for just a second. Mm-hmm. Even at the grave, mm-hmm. sounds like a Stephen King thriller. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it that way. <laughs> but uh, if you if you look at the back cover, you feel it, unless unless you've got an Episcopal priest who's yeah. gone into a different genre. Right. Okay, so yeah. Let's talk about the meaning of, of the title. Even at the grave. Right. Well, it comes from a phrase in the Episcopal funeral liturgy that says that all we go down to the dust, but even at the grave, we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And it means to me that even at this point where it seems that all is lost, there is hope, there is love, there is courage, and that is what I have found. Um somewhat surprisingly to myself I don't know why it should be because I feel like that's really the you know uh, so much of what the Christian message is about but uh, so it it is even then my husband really wanted me to call it um, my life in 40 funerals um, <laughs> but uh, I had a hard like my, time like coming. my big fat Greek wedding or right something. right <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I really did struggle some with the title. I regret it a little bit because I think it turns some people off or they're afraid to give it the book to someone who might be sick or old mm-hmm. and they think, oh, gosh, you think I'm dying. Um, I did have a friend tell me that my next book, but the, the sequel should be called Getting Even at the Grave. <laughs> so that one might be more of yeah. the Stephen King murder <laughs> mystery or something. Well. And, and you know this, when my dad was in the hospital, my mother actually gave me this book, and I was reading this book when I was up there with him um, mm-hmm. alone. And uh, it was nice to be able to laugh, you know, during those mm-hmm. times, but it was also hard not to cry, you know, when I was reading some of these pieces and looking over, mm-hmm. and he wasn't responding. So, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, so there's something in here for, I think, everyone. You even say on the back cover more than just what you said now that uh, – as far as that that phrase that you learned from those with the courage and verve to grow old with gusto, and you discovered generosity and grace even at the grave. Right. So, and and I guess you know I, I'm starting to go to more funerals now. Right. Mm-hmm. We're getting to that age where right. we're going to more funerals, and I almost wonder um, why it is that I feel less worthy every time I leave <laughs> you know you hear this great eulogy mm-hmm. right? are they telling the whole story only half of the story you can't live up to it maybe the 
the young should go hear these because so, they have a chance to turn themselves around, right? You know, but we're older. We're hearing these messages. But, but in a lot of ways, they're very comforting mm-hmm. to, hear, to hear those stories about these lives. All right, so how would you describe the book? Is it uh, you interweave the homilies of the deceased with your own life story? It is a memoir, right? Yes, I, it, I think of that, yes. I but it's, it's not your— It's not just my story. It's not just your story. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think you said these little homilies that appear at the beginning of each chapter are homilies that you preached at funerals, right? Right, right. Where did that idea come from? That actually came from a, a, a friend— who suggested that I have some kind of quote, um, uh, Julie Marr is a friend, give her credit, that I have some sort of quote before each chapter. And so I thought about it and then wondered if perhaps, you know, some snippets from different um, homilies, and that word homily is not always a word that a lot of people, it's, it really means like a short sermon, um, because in the Episcopal Church, we don't really use the word eulogy. Um, and early in the church, no one was allowed to speak about the deceased at a funeral, so that every funeral, whether you're a prince or a pauper, was exactly the same. And it's only been in recent times where people really have have begun the custom of telling the person's story. Most important, we were taught as clergy to make sure we proclaim the good news of the gospel, and so that's why it's more of a sermon than a eulogy that is asked of us that in this moment, what is our hope? Um, However, I began to realize, too, that it was very important to um, enjoy and learn from and celebrate the the best of a person at at the service and to make each service unique um, to that individual. Yeah, I I have seen that shift in my lifetime because... When I went to Episcopal funerals when I was younger, not that many, but I, when I left, I wasn't sure who we buried. Right, yeah. right, precisely. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and some people have said to me, I don't want my name even to come up yeah. um, and did not want any kind of anything said about them because they were of that old school variety. But as they tell me that before they die, I often say, well, you know, when you die, you're no longer my client. Your family yeah. is. Well, that. You know, from my father's situation, he, he was of that mindset, and mm-hmm. he didn't want anything said about him. But when he was giving me this these directives, I was just writing them down. I wasn't promising <laughs> Right, right. Anything. That's a good idea. Yeah. Write it down. They think you're promising Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. yeah. but you're not. You're just you're responding. But, you know, I, I found that it – and I enjoy hearing – about the lives of, of mm-hmm. people, too. So I'm glad that the Episcopal Church has come along. You know, right, and, right. Me, too. Me, too. <laughs> in that regard. So. You, you'd have a pretty – you wouldn't really have much to talk about, would you, if you had to preach the same homily every time, right? right? I know. So, <laughs> uh, But and, it is the, – the lives – we can be blessed by people's lives whether they're – you know, whether we right. knew them or not. Sure. I mean, we've all been to a funeral of some parent of a friend of ours, and we didn't know nothing about them. And we could sit there and we go, gosh, I wish I knew that person – and we feel really blessed even just by hearing their story a little bit. Now, you tell a story in Chapter 1 about your husband's uncle, Reverend Lewis Saunders, and how he bestowed a certain measure of respect and kindness at a funeral that no one was willing to do. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Well, um, Uncle Lewis was the director of the uh, Council of Churches in Fort Worth and Dallas at the time that uh, – Lee Harvey Oswald um, assassinated JFK. And um, and then, of course, he himself was killed um, shortly afterwards. And on the same day that Kennedy was buried, Oswald was buried. And Uncle Lewis was concerned about whether or not a pastor had been found to conduct Oswald's service. Um, and he did contact the funeral home and was reassured that a Lutheran pastor had agreed to do the service. But on that day, he drove out to the cemetery just to make sure everything was okay. And indeed, the Lutheran pastor did not show up and had likely been threatened if he uh, had conducted the service. Um, So the funeral director saw um, Uncle Lewis there and mentioned it to Oswald's mother that uh, there was a minister um, nearby, and so he was asked to invite him to preside. And so he took a Bible from his car and walked up to uh, 
where Oswald's family uh, was, which included his wife, two young daughters, his brother, and his mother, and hundreds of photographers and journalists who were there as well, um, who actually were asked to help carry the coffin because there were no pallbearers present um, to carry Oswald's coffin to the grave. And he stepped up and uh, read some scripture and said that uh, Oswald's mother said that he was a good boy and we um, now commit his soul to God. And that was about it. It was about a two-sentence eulogy, homily, whatever you want to call it, and um, said a prayer and then sat down with the family. Yeah, and you've a got while. a picture. You you have a number of pictures in the book, which are mm-hmm. really nice. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a picture of him seated seated at the coffin with the family, and the expressions uh, is just hard to describe. You mm-hmm. know what they what they show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what did that teach you? It was you know it was always a kind of a, it was a fascinating story that that piece of history that sense that um, everybody um, deserves some measure of respect when they're grieving. Now, whether or not he had respect for Oswald, he had respect for the family there, um, who had become the most reviled family in America right. at that time. Uh, and uh, Lewis, Uncle Lewis did receive death threats after um, conducting that service and did have to have some Secret Service protection for a time. And Oswald's wife used to call him for years sometimes to talk to him because she had so few people she could reach out to. Hmm. So, Lisa, before we get into some other readings here from the book, and we're going to read a number of sections here, um, I want to talk just a minute about some of the early chapters. You start... Uh, with your marriage uh, to Tim and uh, chapter two, your dad set you up, right? Well, he didn't mean to. <laughs> that, um, wasn't, that wasn't his goal, right? No, because at the time I was 12 and my future husband was 16. Okay, he wasn't trying to marry you off at No, 12, he no. was not. Um, but we met then because yeah. of dad. My father was a high school English teacher and my husband was one of his students. And Dad often did things with his students and was involved in things, and sometimes we were um, happily um, in, in hmm. included in those activities, and that's where we met. Um, we re-met about six years later um, when I was in college. All right, you have a chapter here, Chapter 3. It's called Red Rover. Mm-hmm. Red Rover, send Lisa right over. This is uh, about your call to seminary, right? Right, right. What, 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 what drew you besides... Uh, the Red Rover call. <laughs> well, this was a chapter I, I really uh, wasn't very um, excited to write. The first person, uh, a guy named Doug Mays, who I had reading my uh, initial chapters, said, you need to write a chapter about why you went to seminary. I was like, oh. <laughs> uh, and I say, ugh, because I think that people are disappointed in my story. Um, that they expect an exciting story or a story that they go, wow, well, of course you should be a priest. Or right. God, call, God called you and you went. And, right, yeah. yeah, that I had my burning bush experience and right. I didn't. And I also. You, you were curious and you wanted to learn and you were an academic to some extent. Yeah. Right. Journalism um, major in college, right? Yes, yeah. I was a journalism and then religion major too. Okay. Um, um, just because I always tended to take a religion class as an elective, which should be one of those little aha moments. Um, but it, a lot of my call was being able to look back over my life and see and recognize God wooing me, really, in mm-hmm. some ways I felt like, um, into the church I describe in the book that, it, that uh, eventually it felt like um, putting on Cinderella's shoe, <laughs> that the work... Um, fit it just called out for me the strengths that um, that I had and it it, it it made me feel alive and uh, it seemed to make perfect sense but I didn't know any women clergy growing up um, and I really didn't think about that as an option you have a portrait that hangs in your office of your grandfather mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. how does it feel to look at that portrait and know that initially or at least he didn't think that women 
in the ministry was a good idea. Well, initially and lastly, I don't think he ever changed okay. his mind right. about that. So you he, talked to him about that? No, he died when I was six. No, you talked so. to the portrait. Right, oh, right, right. I talked <laughs> to the portrait, right. So, um, and my grandmother was, was in the same camp as he was. Yeah, he watches over me, and I, I, I assume that uh, part of uh, Heaven's re-education program right, right. <laughs> <laughs> encourages uh, him to, to be happy for me and proud of me. Well, um, your mother had an interesting take on it because, you know, you were ordained uh, on your grandfather's birthday, right? Right, yes. And she used that to encourage you by saying that she considers this his blessing on you. Right, because right. the date was not one I chose. I was called to tell her I had the date for my ordination. It's June 21st. And she was quiet, and then she said, that's your grandfather's birthday. Hmm. And, and she said, I think that's his blessing for you. So before we uh, do the next reading, just real quickly, mm-hmm. being a female priest in a man's world, hmm. how was that for you initially? Well, you know, really there are so many parts of ministry that ask more feminine qualities in a person. Um, there's a lot of caring and comforting um, on Sundays, I preside at a table and prepare a meal and feed people. I wear a long dress. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things that are part of the job that really uh, actually are, um, yeah, like I said, more suited into traditional feminine things. I do a lot more listening, uh, ultimately, than talking. But you weren't initially accepted at the first church, at least by the entire committee, right? There in fact, you got some pushback from one of the female yes. members of the committee, right? right. Who, who did not think it was a good idea. That's right. Wanted to know maybe you were going to be doing children's ministry or something. Right. Why I couldn't just do everything as a volunteer and as a doctor's wife. Right. But she came around. She came around. Um, a lot of times people that have uh, opposition to the idea, and then when they meet the individual and it has a human face on it, then all their sort of opposition and arguments begin to fall away. Um, it's the same thing that I've noticed with uh, the LGBTQ community. Precisely. And, I mean, you get to know people, mm-hmm. and it, and, and the same is true, you know, if you meet a Republican or a Democrat sometime and talk to them, maybe you'll, you know. The only exception is the Duke <laughs> people, right? <laughs> yeah, well, at least for the Carolina people, That's right? That's right. My son's at Wake Forest. I think he hates both of them. Yeah. yeah. But you, I like this. You took some, as you said, some statistic pleasure at cocktail parties or wherever mm-hmm. when you weren't wearing your priest garb. Well, I don't or, wear my priest garb ever at cocktail parties. Okay, well, we'll just clear that <laughs> up right now. <laughs> All right, clear that up right now. Uh, but people would walk up to you, and uh, you would be silent as they uh, have some uncensored remark, and mm-hmm. you would take little pleasure in then introducing yourself. Right, In right. your ministerial role. <laughs> well, they'd ask you, what do you do? Right, And yeah. then you would tell them, and then they would just— that blank look. Yeah, you can see. They want to apologize, right? Yeah, they replay the tape. Oh my gosh, did I say anything that would embarrass me or that I would never have said if I knew you were a minister? Um, Yes, I do. Okay, before the break, we're going to read uh, a little bit about preaching at a funeral, and we're going to go to chapter six, the red wagon story, uh, starting on page uh, 44. And whenever you're ready, you can... uh, You can get started. A white damask pall covered Cynthia's casket as it rolled down the church aisle. Another pall hung over the congregation. Her husband Dick sat on the front pew with an arm around each child. His three-year-old son wore a one-piece short-pants sailor suit. I look back now at what I preached and see my rookie mistakes. I spent too much time proving my theological chops. I talked about the early Christians, for Christ's sake. I barely told Cynthia's story. People shifted in the pews and stared out the window or down at their laps. But for a moment, I did something right. I felt it. Something different fell over the church. The congregation stilled. Faces lifted up to meet mine. My words weren't remarkable, but they swelled with pain and hope and holy comfort. A neighbor of the Schaffners told me that Cynthia used to pull the children around the block in a red wagon with wood siding. It was that moment, that image, that I offered to capture her shining beauty 
and how she was content with the simplest of joys. Cynthia loved her children with an intensity and openness that was hard to witness in the face of her illness. The impact of her life continues as we hug our own children a little tighter, reach out in love to someone in need, tell those we love how much they mean to us, or take an afternoon off to go on a picnic or to pull some carefree children around the block in a little red wagon. Years later, people at Cynthia's service still tell me that they remember the red wagon. And Lisa, you you have a picture here at the end of this chapter Mm -hmm. of her with the red wagon Mm -hmm. and her children in the wagon. Mm -hmm. Where did you find all the pictures? Well, I contacted her husband and, you know, I mean, I asked for a photo. And anybody who's in here um, that I tell a story that was not told at the funeral, um, uh, I asked for permission, and then I had to get families to provide photographs as well. All right, so this um, this chapter and this story reveal your rookie mistakes and how you sort of corrected them on the fly in that one situation. Talk about the craft of preaching a homily just a second. Do you have a method, a word count, a time limit, an ultimate yes. goal? What do you, what All do, you of do? That. Okay. Um, my goals are. I'm, One, I I want to make sure I speak to the hope in this moment that we have as Christians. And two, I want to make people feel something as they are sitting in the pew. I want them to feel the presence of that person in a way that says, yes, that was exactly like her. something that makes them realize that I touched on the essence of the person. And then another goal, so I guess that's threefold, and it is to also speak to any questions I think people might have coming into the service, um, particularly if there's been, um, uh, you know, somebody dies very young or tragically or if there's a suicide um, or it's the death of a child. People come in with a lot of questions of faith and I don't want to ignore those questions and speak to them. You talk about that in the book, um, dealing with all these different circumstances, whether to confront, for example, something like suicide in a mm-hmm. funeral. And you talk about having done that, mm-hmm. right, and the difference that it made for others who felt when they'd had a situation in their family, they couldn't openly confront it, and they carried that wound right. around for years. Right, definitely. And you also do... Um, something that I think endears you to the people of your congregation, which is add humor mm-hmm. to it. Um, and sometimes even after the, the family member or spouse who's left says to you in the pre-planning stages, well, I'm going to tell you this, but you, you shouldn't use this, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of look over at them as you're about to say it, and they know it's coming, right? <laughs> well, if they tell me they don't want me to use it, I, I know, but I mean, it. But you know when they're telling you, I don't want you to use this, and I really don't want you to use right. this, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Right. So. Uh, you, you told a story at my father's service mm-hmm. that got a really big laugh about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my mother making a comment. Uh, do you remember what it was? Oh, yeah. of course. And I, you know, she told me that a couple of years ago, and ever since she told me that, you know, I've, I've shared it with others. And then, Well, go ahead and share it now. Yeah. Um, um, a couple of years ago, I asked Landis's mom, I said, why haven't you and Ham moved out of your house and moved, you know, to some retirement community? Assisted living. Right. Yeah. Something. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I said, why haven't you at least gone to assisted living? And, and, and Landis's mom, Joya, said, why would I do that? Ham's been in assisted living for the past 60 years. <laughs> yeah, and everybody in the congregation, that just broke the moment. It made, did, made yeah. It right. and then the it's other, a great line. And the other thing you did, which, uh, you know, the family didn't even know this until we are talking about my mother tells us as we're planning that she had been engaged. You didn't know that story? I, my, my son didn't know it. I had kind of heard it years ago but had forgotten about it, you know. But the, the kids were coming up afterwards. God, what's this about this guy that went off to the— <laughs> To the war, to the war, you know. Yeah, your mother probably wasn't as happy about my saying that. <laughs> yeah, well, but no, it was a great compliment I, I, to I, her. I think so. I mean, my dad danced his way into her life, so to That's speak. That's right. And, I thought yeah, it was. Yeah. I thought it spoke to uh, yeah. uh, your, yeah. your dad's capacity to to. <laughs> 
to um, woo her and fight off any suitors. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving along here. We're going to take a short break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about homilies, unusual funerals, um, and uh, we're going to do the author-to-author segment, and we've got some more readings. So stay with us. So I'm here at Parkwood Books at the Staff Picks Wall with James. James, how you doing? I'm well, thanks. James, tell us what's on your wall. Uh, currently, I've got the new Jill Schlesinger, The Dumb Things That Smart People Do With Their Money. Uh, I've got The American War by Omar Ellicott. Uh, historical Fiction Under Enemy Colors by Thomas Russell. Uh, the Current by Tim Johnson. The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. And Jeffrey Deaver's latest, The Never Game. So you, uh, you picked these because you like the books, right? Oh, absolutely. So which ones do you like best? Uh, currently, the Deaver is my favorite, but it's the one that I've read most currently. But uh, it's a new character, and I loved it. And I've read this uh, series uh, that Thomas Russell has, Under Enemy Colors. Tell us about that. It is historical fiction set in the uh, during the Napoleonic Wars uh, about a British naval officer whose mother happened to be French, and his father was British, and so he is looked at under some suspicion by his superiors. Um, it's a great series. Uh, good stuff at Park Road Books, y'all. Check it out. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with Lisa Saunders, author of Even at the Grave. Lisa, we talked earlier about the fact that you have some very short excerpts of some of the homilies that you preach. And just to give a flavor for what appears in front of these chapters. I'm going to have you read read a few of these, um, so whenever you're ready. Okay. All right, this one is from the homily at the funeral for Tom Stores. Tom's secretary recalls being worried when she first started working for him. As she put it, Tom had a gorgeous education from Virginia and Harvard, and she had a high school diploma. But Tom always treated her with respect and kindness. Each morning as bank president, Tom greeted everyone by name and with a cheery, good morning. He expected a good day's work out of everyone, but he was also interested in people's personal well-being, writing beautiful notes to colleagues and employees who suffered loss or hardship. When his secretary's mother was ill, Tom told her, I want you to know that your family comes first. If you need to leave, just go. At her mother's nursing home, she discovered that Tom had been by to pay her mother a visit. He had never mentioned he was going. This was part of the homily at funeral for Mariana Kuster. Mariana had a living room quality grace about her, but she made everyone feel back porch comfortable. I never visited her without being offered a sandwich, a homemade cookie, and a glass of sweet tea. She was the quintessential homemaker, but not the least bit dowdy. She kept her girlish figure for more than 90 years. Her son Frank quipped that if he got out of bed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, he would come back to find the bed made and his shoes shined. And this was from Hilda Ferrer's funeral. When Hilda became weaker last week, her daughter said, Mother, you can't leave me now. There are four more weeks of Dancing with the Stars left. The two had enjoyed watching the television program together. Hilda won't be there to see who wins the competition because she has taken Dancing with the Stars to a whole new level. This is from the funeral for Harvey Fulp, who was my husband's surrogate father. Harvey raised golden retrievers and Springer Spaniels. One summer he had 30 puppies. I figured that when he arrived at Heaven's Gate, before St. Peter could say a word of welcome, dozens of hunting dogs reached Harvey first, delighted to see their beloved master again. This is from the funeral of Henry Farr. During the last days of Henry's life, he wore a Superman t-shirt. Henry, of course, had no more powers than the rest of us. In fact, in the last years of his life, he had fewer powers than most of us have. He required medical intervention every few days. 
but he did not need superpowers to lead a super life. Henry showed us that the human powers of kindness, humility, integrity, and an enduring wit are enough to elevate and adorn a life, even in the midst of loss and limitations. We may have survived Henry, but he outlived us all. This is from the funeral for Dick Salisbury. On a trip to New York City, Dick wanted to take his 16-year-old son to a Broadway musical. So without knowing one thing about it, Dick got tickets to the hottest show in town, O Calcutta. Dick was horrified when he realized that he'd brought his son to a play where everyone was nude on stage. But they managed to stay for the entire performance. Thank you for those, Lisa. Going from this last one here that we just heard, I kind of want to take you to another section of the book on page 128. You were preaching um, a homily uh, at uh, Nona Butterworth's funeral. Mm Mm-hmm. And here you added a little comic relief. So uh, maybe if you could start reading at uh, a year before. Sure. A year before Nona Butterworth's death, I sent a questionnaire to couples at church who had been married for more than 50 years. At her funeral, I shared Nona's response. Nona wrote about the importance of love and respect, of shared activities, and encouraging each other's individual interests. And out of all those who responded to my survey, Nona was the only one who listed sex as one of the reasons for the success of her marriage. Then I turned to her widowed husband and gave him a thumbs up. <laughs> so, uh, add that levity, that humor to the, right. to, and, to the and, moment. And they were in their 80s at that time. <laughs> okay. Well, then uh, there is hope after uh, 61, right? There is. <laughs> um now, you, in addition to the humor, you've done some unusual funerals. Um, mm-hmm. You did one for horses. Right. That has to probably be the most unusual. Right. And that uh, involved young girls who and a, and a fire mm-hmm. that happened, and uh, you showed up, and suddenly were dealing with something you'd never dealt with before. Right. Well, I, I knew that it was something I'd never dealt with before, but I, I realized when I showed up how serious it was, how much it meant to those families. But I got a call because there had been a fire at a barn, um, and uh, eight horses had been killed in the fire, and, um, and others, uh, you know, singed or affected, and could I come and do a funeral for these horses? And they buried them in a large grave beside the Um, the burned barn and so um, I headed out there yeah this was not something that anybody trained me for or did not come up in seminary I headed out there and realized how much this hurt and affected these families and tried to figure out some way to um, to honor the animals the, the friends that these horses had been and how important they were to um, their young riders and and spoke to what they had taught them by their beauty and their majesty and their great size and yet their gentleness, even though they were such large animals too. And it uh, proved uh, to be a moving time for everybody. Right. And, you, and animals also come into play in other Mm-hmm. chapters there's mrs horky and her dogs yes yeah, you know. mrs horky horky's paws in is a long time kennel uh, here in charlotte that boards dogs and had boarded my dogs numerous times and i saw her obituary in the paper and thought oh wow i should go to the funeral and yet at the same time i thought you know really it's my dog that knew her best <laughs> and that there should be dogs present so i contacted a few friends who i knew also boarded um, there and we were waiting with our dogs outside the church when the family emerged and it was really lovely they came out you know very sort of solemn and and serious and they saw all those dogs that they recognized and knew well and the family because it was a family business um and uh they all just, they just kinda, responded well they yeah, did yeah. um yeah now, you, you deal uh, with difficult times in the book, funerals at Christmas, 
funerals when children die young, mm-hmm. cancer, babies, yeah. and, uh, mm. and we've talked about mental illness earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, no e- funeral's easy to do, I wouldn't think, but are there some that are harder than others? Oh, yeah. Any any child's funeral's really hard, and, I, and they don't get easier. Um, anybody who's death could have been prevented you know um, easily prevented it seems um, uh, so the the tragic endings of somebody dying young when they have so much more to live and to give those are really those are really very hard um, it is actually possible you know for some when people have lived wonderfully good lives long lives to resist the temptation to be sad at those events and to truly be able to celebrate their lives. Mm. So we can't have a, uh, a podcast episode with a Episcopal minister without talking about theology a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so you've got a chapter here, chapter 9, I want you mm-hmm. to turn to. Uh, the title of the chapter is Saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about uh, what inspired this chapter. Well, I know... For myself, my own sort of, whether some people might not call it growth, but I would say growth in um, development, evolution of my own theology of what I was taught about what it means to be saved, um, changed a good bit from the time that I was um, a teenager until being an adult. And so I try to share some of that evolution in that chapter. And it is certainly the chapter I get the most comments about, and um, where people do also feel sort of relieved to find out that some of what they've always sort of wondered about, thought about, maybe even believed themselves, was okay Mm -hmm. to believe. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so I'm going to have you start out. You're going to read a little bit from the beginning, and then uh, we're going to jump to the end and read a little segment at the end with your daughter. I was 14 years old and walking through the campus of Wake Forest University with my mother when a student approached us and asked, have you been saved? Without skipping a beat, my mother replied, I was saved 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. We continued on our way, no further discussion. My mother's response stayed with me, planting a seed in a garden of questions. Was faith in God a ticket to heaven? Did God draw a line in the sand at death? What about people who led good and loving lives but didn't believe in God? What about people who did evil things? Was eternal life off the table for them? My high school young life leaders taught that being saved meant saying, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The actual words needed to be said, in earnest and not by rote. Jesus was a stickler about this, and only those who said it got into heaven. My baptism, my 14 years of Sunday school and church, and my rudimentary prayers did not count for a hill of beans unless I said the words. My sixth grade confirmation was perfunctory and inconsequential. Their stance toward salvation left non-Christians out in the cold. It seemed as though being saved depended more on something I did than something God did. When my daughter, Julia Gray, was in third grade, I was searching for a parking space at the mall when she randomly announced from the back seat, Jesus and Superman aren't the same. That's right, honey, I said, absently craning my neck in search of an empty space. Then she added something that made me hit the brakes. Superman only saves good people, but Jesus saves you whether you're good or bad. Ah, yes, precisely. Superheroes rescue only those worthy of saving. Jesus saves the rest of us, which ends up being all of us. The goal of a Christian life is not to clinch a spot in heaven. That is secured. God's love for us does not run out, expire, lapse, tire, or end. We are free to reject God. Yet God will not give up on us in this life or the next. I believe God wants eternal communion with all of creation. And I believe that God can accomplish what God wants. 
So, Lisa, you said this is one of the most discussed chapters. Did you get any pushback? I'm sure there are those who think differently, but they have not uh, reached out to me. It's been more people who... um, Feel comforted by it. Right. Um, And, you know, yeah, it is a bit, you know, it is a universalist uh, uh, approach. Um, uh, uh, And as uh, my uh, uh, rector and colleague has said that... um, God's power to love us is greater than our power to reject God. And that ultimately, me, is what I was trying to say in this chapter as well and explain how I went from believing one thing to believing another. And sometimes it gets played out in the lives, the tragic lives of many people who might worry that their loved one died without saying the words and that uh, they have no hope uh, for a life beyond this life. But that makes no sense that suddenly God stops loving us at the time we most need God's love. All right. We're going to talk just a minute about uh, you as a writer. I call it the author-to-author segment. Uh, First of all, did you know you were a writer before you wrote this book? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I think I, I've thought about myself as a writer a long time. Okay. When did you first realize you were a writer? I was probably in third or fourth grade when I used to write poetry. Um, I would write stories. Um, oh, I always liked to write. So in this segment, we've got two authors with a couple of questions. Uh, Susan Proctor uh, appeared in season one of the podcast. Her work has appeared in numerous publications as Lilth Magazine, American Mothers Literacy, Jewish Values Online Journal. She received a number of awards for her writing. Susan has these questions and might get you in trouble with the first one. A number of our most prolific writers have been known to create some of their best work while in their cups, so to speak. Have you ever found a sip of the spirit spurred you on while you're writing? (laughs) Oh, I am a terrible (laughs) drinker. I mean, uh, you know, not even a an ounce makes me sleepy. So no, I it would not help would me not, at all. It would not help you at all. Okay. Mm-mm. All right. How how would you define the muse? Do you believe in her? Did you ever feel her on your shoulder as you were writing this book? What I feel, and sometimes it happens when writing anything, a sermon. I suddenly know. That there, that what I want is in there, and I just have to get the words in the right order, and come up with the right words too. So sometimes I'm writing and I'm realizing ah, I'm not going to get anywhere. I could sit here for hours and it's not happening. And then sometimes I'm writing and I'm realizing it's here. I just have to like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. I have everything I need. I can do this. And that leads perfectly to her next question, where she says, we've heard the phrase, the water doesn't flow till you turn on the spigot. What turns on the spigot for you? Well, certainly scriptures had to, because that's usually where I begin with any sermon, is I look at what the readings for that Sunday are, and that starts it. And I ask myself, what interests me? Where's the hook for me? I look for some sort of, of angle. Um, the fact that Sunday comes whether I want it to or not, mm-hmm. I mean that's that's the inspiration right there's, there. There's always you, a deadline, right? Yeah, I have God, to God get has up. A sense of humor. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to get up in the pulpit and say something. Yeah. Um, so that kind of forces it a little bit, but um, I just I sometimes if I'm feeling like I'm feeling stuck, I'll say you know I'll say I'm feeling constipated. I can't you know it's it's not coming out you know, right. um, and I'll go for a walk and. Um, and I just have to be in my head a little bit, and it'll start unraveling in a positive way. The story will start coming undone and revealing itself to me. Some authors have said that they always carry something with them when those ideas strike. Do you carry a notebook? Do you carry I have my phone, so sometimes, yes, I'll start using uh, – and in the middle of the night, I used to write down a few things. I'd wake okay. up in the middle of the night and write down, and then you can't read your handwriting the next morning <laughs> and can't remember what you said. So, and of course, my family always, my husband always says that, that he and the children are just sermon fodder for me. <laughs> All right. A couple more questions. Different author, uh, mm-hmm. Gilda Marina Cyrus, and she wrote mm-hmm. a memoir. 
She's an author also of two poetry books. She has these questions. Did you outline or free flow as you were writing your book? I would know that this chapter was going to be about this funeral. Okay, and so you would kind of set it up chapter-wise, but then in a chapter itself you might, what, would you outline or would you kind of go no, with flow? No, no outline. What about your sermons? Do you outline? Do you? No. Okay. And here's, here's her other question, which I think is, and you may have already <laughs> answered this, how do your family members respond to the book? And then I'll add this. How do they respond to your sermons? For the listeners, you're smiling. Right. Well, um, I've gotten good response from from family. Some of them were a little, I had some, my daughters were a little concerned about the chapter where I talk about racism, where I talk about my own sense, you know, awareness of my own sometimes racist views that um, I pocketed over the years. And they were very concerned that people would think poorly of me. Um, mm. But many people have felt sort of, felt that I was being honest and appreciated that. Um, but I think there's been a good bit of um, happiness and pride about it. Um, and uh, for the most part, I've pretty much stopped asking my family, you know, permission to use them. So my husband sometimes has to show up at church and find himself talked about in the sermon. Um, it's uh, it's just sort of, I, I have a a tacit approval, pretty much. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned hard topics. You could have easily not included the chapter on racism. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose to include it? Well, a lot of the chapters I felt like were launching pads to talk about difficult subjects. And um, and it's also, you know, been a part of my own evolution, um, whether it's been about my theology as well as understanding um becoming woke um, and uh, realize, realizing my own white privileges and, um, and how my life is different because of uh, uh, the fact that I'm white and, um, and, and grew up in a house with, you know, with some means. Um, although, you know, my dad was... And, high. and some attitudes that had been, right. had been passed down from their parents. Right, right, right. yeah. I mean, uh, my grandparents on both sides, my great-great-grandparents on both sides were owners of slaves. So um, I, I was suddenly more aware of prejudices that I didn't even realize were a part, were, were almost default things that I um, had to face and, um, and recognize. And in this season, we're doing a number of episodes that actually tackled this very issue, white privilege, with several mm-hmm. other ministers that are going to be on the show. And as white people, sometimes we don't know what we don't know, right? Right. And Christ Episcopal Church is a large congregation mostly made up of... White people. White people. Mm-hmm. And do you find that it's hard sometimes for people in the congregation to understand what people of color are dealing with and the vestiges that have put them in a different position than they have themselves. Of course, of course they have some difficulty with that. I, you know, I, like I said, I wasn't something I was o- always aware of. Um, and while we, you know, primarily a white congregation, we're also very diverse inside you know i mean we're very purple congregation probably Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with a lot of different viewpoints theologically as well um with a lot of different uh struggles um but there is a greater openness and interest in talking about um uh reconciliation and matters of justice related to race tomorrow i'm leaving with a group of our church to Montgomery, Alabama, where we're going to multiple civil rights museums and visiting the new Equal Justice Monument um, dedicated to all those who've been lynched. So, um, and that is a group primarily of white people Hmm. um, who are making that journey. Well, it's good. And you have a lot of programming at Christ Church, so you can work these things in and uh, mm-hmm. help help people understand. Pam Kelly, who was on mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, we graduated the same you, year you from did? Chapel Hill. There you go. Okay. Well, you know Pam's book, Money Rock. She, mm-hmm. she actually, as we said in her episode in season two, sort of peeled back the onion 
uh, and showed you a part of Charlotte that uh, is probably not the mm-hmm. kind of Charlotte that's that the Chamber of Commerce wants to talk about right, very right. often. Um, all right, Lisa, there's a little bit of irreverence in your book too, right? Mm-hmm. You had uh, you had a parishioner approach you after uh, a sermon one one mm-hmm. <laughs> one Sunday and compliment your. Your, my, my shoes. Your shoes, yeah. So, yeah. What'd she say? Yeah. Well, I, she said, "I, I love." How, first of all, how old is, is the parishioner? Oh, yeah. well, she was in her probably in her eighties when she said this to me. Okay. Um, and uh, she said, "Great sermon, and I love your fuck me pumps." <laughs> uh, and and you're thinking, how does she even know what those are, right? Uh, but then also, we can't leave this without a little more irreverence you put in the book. George Carlin's take on life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. I mean, George Carlin, mm-hmm. the great comedian. He says you should take life in reverse. And I'm looking at page 152 of your book here. He says you should start out dead and get that out of the way first. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you wake up in a nursing home and you start to feel better each and every day. Well, on retirement, which would be your first day of work, you get a gold watch. You right. know, and it gets better and better right, and better. Right. And he says, and at the end, uh, you're floating in this perfectly luxurious spa-like conditional, conditioned central heating room service on tap. And then you finish it off with an orgasm. <laughs> I rest yeah, my case. That's right. <laughs> that's George Carlin. Yeah, right. I love that. So, Lisa, when you put this in your book, in your first draft, you had some readers. Did anyone react to the fact that you were – putting words on the page that wouldn't necessarily appear in a church service or, um, you know, in a Sunday school class, did it? For the most part, no. It's uh, perhaps has made me seem a little more human. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I did have somebody who read the book on a plane, and we were on the same plane, and he read it while we were there. And when we got off the plane, he looked at me and said, I like your shoes. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, Lisa, normally we... Uh, start a book with the dedication but in your case you finish it and we're going to finish this episode with you reading the last paragraph of your book which is a dedication in and of itself right and if you remember the title of the first chapter is stopping time and this is the last paragraph this book is dedicated to those whom we see no more but who love us all the more It is about the countless ways their souls live on in ours, pushing through time. It is about how funerals teach me to live. And funerals have taught you a lot of things over the years. It's not just been your vocation. You've actually gotten something spiritual out of this experience. Oh, yeah. Like I said, um, that that hope on the worst day of your life, that sense of courage to to see... uh, love and to focus on the gift even on a day when you feel like things have been most important things have been taken away from you um, those are all you know to me profound lessons and then just hearing the stories of people's lives um, of of how they find found joy uh, most often it is in their families and loved ones of course and everybody at the church wants you to do their funeral, Lisa. That has to be a compliment. Well, I, I take it as a compliment, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. we have many capable, oh, wonderful you, you, preachers you, at our church. You do. But you did have one, and just occurred to me, you did have one parishioner once who uh, actually didn't feel worthy to be buried mm-hmm. in the columbarium, right, down in where you spread, right. spread the ashes. Mm-hmm. And what was it that you did to convince him otherwise? Well, he resisted being buried in the garden he knew he was dying but he said he didn't feel like that it was his place to be there that he was not he had made mistakes in his lives and he regretted that and didn't feel like he was worthy and I tried all kinds of theological justifications and arguments and didn't get anywhere with him and then I told him you know what why don't you go down to that garden and look <laughs> at the names of the people who are buried there and then tell me if you don't think that you deserve to be there too and and that did it <laughs> lisa where can we find your book um you can find my book at uh, park road books right. and at uh, the good news shop which is a store uh shop inside Christchurch. also at three french hens and on amazon all right well lisa this has been a lot of fun thank you for for writing the book thanks 
Thank you, Chip, if you're listening, for encouraging her to write a book, not about sermons. <laughs> uh, oh, you've written something else, too, right, before we leave? I did write a, a, a Christmas uh, children's book. Okay, and that's uh, out there now? That's yeah. out there now, too. But, uh, but uh, yeah, maybe we can talk about that next Christmas. Uh, okay, we'll do. <laughs> we'll do, put that on hold for a moment. All right, well, Lisa, thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet two authors, Miriam Heron and Christy Alexander Hallberg, who came to Charlotte for a North Carolina Literary Review reading event at Park Road Books. In their episode, they read stories about Cambodian refugees and mercy, and Christy's story about Freddie Mercury, the star of the rock group Queen, and readings from Miriam's award-winning book, A Stone for Bread, which is a literary mystery about a collection of poems allegedly saved from a Nazi death camp. If you liked our show, please tell your friends and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereadpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us on our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. You sign up for our email list at our website. Thank you for that. We will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.